I am now recording. Perfect. And so am I. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the CompuLang podcast. My name is Jacob, and today is the 10th of October, 2020. We have a couple of cool stories for you today, but first I'd like to welcome my guest on the podcast, my friend, Troy. Hey, Jacob. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Um, all right. So let's just jump right in. The first story that we have today is from this ZDNet article. We're talking about Amazon's new Eero Mesh, uh, they're like Wi-Fi routers, and they're coming to ISPs, meaning that certain ISPs, you know, when you pay for your internet service, they will actually send you a router, a modem, stuff like that. And Amazon Eero is possibly partnering with some of these ISPs to send you Eero routers. What do you think about that, Troy? Well, it sounds good on the surface. The article uh, that we're looking at talks a lot about um, how it gives ISPs control at the uh, at the router level, basically, to um, manage mm-hmm. uh, the internet access. And so it has some security concerns that some people are concerned about. Um, yeah, I can definitely see this being a privacy issue where, you know, you're bringing all of these extra controls that Eero devices provide, and now your ISP is in control of all this stuff. Um, However, I was looking a little bit on the Eero website, and they have some really interesting features. Like if you subscribe to their Eero Secure uh, service, they actually provide you with a whole bunch of really cool controls, um, like web filtering and ad blocking built into your router. Um, I think that, I mean, if you were not just getting this router from your ISP so that the ISP has access to all these controls, what would you think of like having this device in your home? Well, it's, the features are really nice. I'm kind of interested in, um, a lot of websites are able to detect if you have an ad blocker nowadays and Mm -hmm. not let you in until you disable it. So I wonder if the ad blocker built into the router will still trip that and then somebody if they want to access that website, we'll have to go into their router and allow that specific web page, which may be a hassle. So I'm interested to see how robust those services are. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah, I know like a bunch of websites, they'll be like, oh, you need to disable your ad blocker. And some of the disable your ad blockers have gotten really sophisticated. They're like, okay, so if you're using this ad blocker, these are the steps that you follow. If you're using this ad blocker, these are the steps that you follow. And I don't know if this device gets popular, it, yeah. Could it be more effort than it's worth to go into your router settings and disable the ad blocking just to access a website? Yeah. I I wonder if it would be more convenient if they had some type of app that would let you immediately connect to your router. Uh, I'm not sure what the cons- security concerns with that would be, but that would maybe help the case. It's This seems like a pretty new age router, so I wouldn't be surprised if they had mm-hmm. an app that allows you to access it directly. Yeah, probably. Do they have an app? That is a really good question. It looks like they probably do. Yeah, okay. Yeah, control it in the palm of your hand. So they do have an app. But still, like, just to disable ads on a website, just so you can view this website, you actually have to 
it, it's essentially like the same number of steps you'd have to do to like access a website with two-factor uh, authentication. You have to pull Ooh. out your phone and disable the ad blocking. And... Classic. <laughs> we all love that two-factor identification. Yeah, so that could be a hassle. But interesting to see how they tackle that problem if it actually arises at all. All right, so um, the next story that we're looking at today is from a Vice article uh, where it says that Customs and Border Protection has actually been purchasing location data from certain weather and game apps. Um, it says in August, Motherboard, which is uh, the Vice like tech uh, section, so um, in August, um, sorry, Motherboard reported that uh, Customs and Border Pro uh, Protection paid this company called Ventil nearly half a million dollars in a recent deal to get some of this data. Um, this document says it was about $475,000, which that seems relatively money. <laughs> well, for location data, that seems relatively cheap to me because oh, that is true. in very high demand. Um, but also, you know, is any of this really news per se? I mean, every time it, it is the government. It, <laughs> yeah. Every time it comes out, people are like, Oh, they're buying our data. And it's, you know, whatever, whatever this claims the government is doing, the government is probably doing like three times more than this at least. Yeah. I think one of the highlights of this article was that the data was that the government purchased from these companies was not just us data it was global data so tracking people not just in the united states but possibly around the world that's true yeah that's an excellent point because it was the u.s customs and border protection that was uh buying the the uh the data and so uh it kind of makes sense that they would want that uh access to non-us devices especially since likely and from their perspective non-us devices would be more useful on tracking who is crossing borders illegally mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i'm seeing right here at the end of the article it says that nobody's really answering questions as to whether it they're uh divulging data to the government about either people beyond the u.s borders or uh, even users who aren't u.s citizens so european users as mentioned specifically so that could be interesting. Uh, again, yeah. I didn't answer the question, so we don't know. But <laughs> Yeah, the article has a source saying that it would be fairly difficult to identify specific people. Um, that, that you could, but it'd be, quote, laborious. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it would definitely be a lot of hoops to jump through to figure out if a user was, like, in the U.S., but not a citizen, you need uh, what's the word? You need to double check that against something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but definitely still possible, and yeah. probably already happening. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. No, wouldn't put it past the government. All right. <laughs> well, um, next up we have. A article from the South China Morning Post that's talking about Huawei. So if you remember from recent news or semi-recent news, I think this might have been over a year ago already, um, Google uh, or Huawei rather was 
barred from using Google services, Google Play services in its uh, future new devices, which essentially means that Android as we know and love it would not mm-hmm. work, would not be allowed to work rather on new Huawei devices, which kind of threw a bunch of Huawei device owners into a bit of a panic. And I remember there was a bit of a selling frenzy back mm-hmm. when that news was first announced. Um, but now Huawei, well, actually as of a while ago, they've been developing their new OS. Um, but a new revelation about this Harmony OS, Huawei's new Android alternative, is that it's going to be open source, which struck me as quite surprising considering it's a China-based company. What do you think about that, Troy? Uh, it is surprising on the forefront. However, I think the risk is minimalized because it's specifically a microkernel OS. So mm-hmm. for those who might not know, things like um, Apple's iOS and Android are considered monolithic OSs, which means that they're quite big and they have everything you need to interact with the hardware uh, built into the device. And that makes it good in the sense that everything is there that so that a software application can use those tools. However, when you're porting it to different devices with different hardware, it can get kind of tricky to go back in and fix the stuff that needs to be changed for that specific hardware. Now, mm-hmm. a microkernel, which is what Harmony OS uh, is, is a lo- it's smaller than monolithic. It has the bare, absolute bare minimum bones to be called an operating system. And then external uh, servers or applications are in charge of doing the rest, like uh, f- like managing file storage, for example. Uh, and so okay. you don't actually see a whole lot of what will be on, uh, how do you pronounce it? Huawei? Huawei, yeah. Huawei, you, you won't, the source code isn't actually a whole lot of what will be on Huawei devices. Um, is a core component though. So there is some potential security concerns if people are able to look at the source code. Um, however, I think the uh, the losing of intellectual property, right, is kind of minimized by the fact that it is a microkernel. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. So um, one of so security concerns with open source software. It's kind of a double edged sword in my experience mm-hmm. because yeah, like anyone can download the code and kind of play around with it and find security vulnerabilities and then exploit them. And they're a lot easier to find because any random person, you know, no matter their level of expertise, can see this code and possibly find these yeah. exploits. But like in uh, on the other side of that, that could actually be a good thing because it's an open source project and anyone can view the code and find security vulnerabilities. Anyone can also submit fixes for them. Exactly. So and so they, yeah, they're able to combat uh, those security risks by being open source, like you said. Um, mm-hmm. What I think is ex- exceptionally noteworthy about this is how long this microkernel has been in development, right? The article says that they started this way back in 2012, uh, anticipating issues with like US bans on, you know, Android or Apple use in China. Um, 
and for so it's 2020 right which means that this operating system in its current state has been in development for eight years which is uh an a geological age in terms of software (laughs) and so i i am anticipating that this is going to be a very you know no software is perfect but this is going to be very clean very well thought out Mm -hmm. and very like long-standing operating system yeah because i wonder it's smaller at its base and it's had a lot of time for development yeah so it'll probably be really polished so it looks like they announced their first devices using it i think uh, would that have been that 2019 conference i think they only currently have one device that they're putting to market right now that they're planning to have the operating system uh the honor smart screen the first device to use harmony os yeah so that could be interesting to see how that goes down um this page is entirely in chinese (laughs) well and the interesting thing is uh the other kind of main point of this article is the rollout is so slow it's not going to all devices because their major drawback is still not being able to flawlessly run android apps right because when you have Mm -hmm. a different os you have two options you either create your own app store which is very difficult to get off the ground considering things like the google play store and the apple app store are so uh, well established or Mm -hmm. you have the ability to run apps from other app stores on your operating system which involves a lot of finagling to try and mimic those operating systems yeah yeah definitely uh even in the article i think it says uh you can get android apps to run on harmony but it requires between one to two days of work at least and frankly i i'm not seeing most android developers being willing to do that yeah well because except for the really big players of course that's true and huawei actually made this thing called the arc compiler to help with this and that's what makes the uh conversion process one to two days is if they use this compiler um which i think is a good idea i think if they really wanted to jumpstart their app store they would do something where they would offer to convert people's software for them right mm-hmm. put the burden not on the developers but put the burden on the on huawei to start that process and i think because you know you could just send in your app right wait a couple days and then they say here it is how does it look right you look at it quick <laughs> if it looks good then you put it on their app store right it's it's mm-hmm. a lot less work than one to two days yourself yeah that sounds pretty involved to be perfectly honest but that could be a good way to jumpstart their app store. Maybe just at the beginning. Well, I they're, they're going like to need to make some big plays because they are going up against yeah. Android and Apple who have been in the game for years and already have a you know, devoted following mm-hmm. and have absolutely wonder, dominated the market. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it could be enough of an incentive to access all of the new Huawei devices because I'm not sure what their market share is, but my guess is that it's a lot bigger in China than it is in other places. So I wonder if it's enough of an incentive to access that portion of the market uh, for app developers to just 
kind of suck it up and say, all right, we're going to spend the next two days uh, supporting, you know, adding support for uh, Harmony OS to our Android application. Yeah, no, I think because honestly, in my opinion, one to two days doesn't sound that long, right? That's like, you know, a typical sprint in development is two weeks. So that's mm-hmm. like a sixth of a sprint. Yeah. I wonder, is this one to two days for a single developer or one to two days for the entire app development team? That's an excellent point. It's it's pretty vague uh, on that point. Well, I also this think... This... Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, um, I think it'll also be... Well, it's interesting because, number one, if this works right it's it's giving china a lot more control over their devices right Mm -hmm. yeah um because they have you know their own uh national operating system basically um Mm -hmm. but i'm also curious as to what options there will be to have more control over the device from an application level because it's a microkernel i feel Um, like developers might be able to do a lot more with the device because they're able to it, it might be more work supporting you know parts of the operating system that would usually be included in a monolithic operating system but the developers now have control over that mm-hmm. and so i'm hmm. and that that won't come into play for a long time this guy got off the ground first before anybody's like hey let's utilize this operating system in our app instead of let's just convert yeah. our app to this operating system mm-hmm I think at least in Android, apps are typically pretty heavily sandboxed, which is why you have like the permissions. I'm, I'm sorry, do you have an Apple or or I have an Android? Uh, do you have like an you do you have an Android? So yeah. you're familiar with like um, the permissions pop ups or something like that. Like oh, this app needs yep. permission to yep. whatever. Um, so since they're so heavily sandboxed, I wonder if in Android, I wonder if Harmony OS because it, it seems to be like they're trying to like be really close to supporting Android apps still, you know, they have this compiler and stuff. I wonder if they're going to also try and emulate that permission structure where they're going to heavily sandbox the apps first and then just ask for permissions to access portions of the kernel maybe. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Um, Install this new driver or something like that. Yeah, I I think, you know, there there's been a lot of attempts to bring a new OS into the mobile game um, or just the OS game in general, honestly. Um, And and pretty much all of them have failed, but just, just the fact that this one has been in development for eight years before even being like released and the Mm -hmm. fact that it's open source, I think this one has a pretty good chance. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see where this one goes. In other news. (laughs) In other news. um, From Business Insider, we're looking at an interesting issue that one family had with their Tesla. Uh, Troy, why don't you take this one away? Sure, yeah. So this family uh, bought a Tesla Model Y off of a lot. And I believe it was as they were driving away from the lot, they were going, I think, 70 on the highway. And their roof... like came off it started peeling back and it just plant it turned into a convertible basically and so they <laughs> except you can't convert it back <laughs> exactly one-way convertible and so they returned it to the lot and they're still trying to decide whether they're getting another one or, or not but um 
it's uh, another example of a lot of quality issues that have come out of uh, Tesla's um, recent models. Hmm. That's slightly concerning. As someone who would definitely love to own a Tesla, but definitely also doesn't have the money for it right now. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's... Number one, I'm just surprised that there was... So the roof of this Tesla, right, from beginning of windshield to the back is just like a curve. So Uh I have no clue how, like, how much the roof part was sticking up to where it was able to catch the wind to get ripped off. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting point. I have no clue how that could happen. It just looks too aerodynamic. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, One of the guys... Uh, in the article quoted in the article said none of us knew how to react and frankly i would too like i'm just driving down the road and all of a sudden my car has no roof i think they they used very friendly language here they said the roof detached and i think that is possibly the um you know least uh descriptive way you could actually describe (laughs) the situation yes the roof simply detached Yes, it was That's like all. it was. It's like it was meant to. Uh, <laughs> well, well, I find particularly interesting because it it seems like this is a pretty widespread issue among the Tesla car uh, family that there's panels that are out of place, that there are mm-hmm. uh, non-official parts in the cars, and this is a result of um, after the cars come off of the assembly line, they're double checked, and sometimes there need to be fixes because something went wrong on the assembly line and so mm-hmm. the the theory at least is that all these issues stem from that that off the production line they have these issues mm-hmm. and they're either not being fixed or being fixed very poorly yeah um, yeah and what i'm you know kind of with with the harmony os right i i was saying that it has so it's had so long of a time to be developed i think it's going to be really like sturdy firm and long lasting i think Mm -hmm. the inverse is true with the tesla assembly line because you know tesla you know it's it feels like tesla's been around for a while now but it really hasn't if you Mm -hmm. think about it like tesla is really blown up and they've got their fingers in a lot of different things right they've got their was it skynet right which is really starting to get off the ground now they've got spacex they've got their their family the boring of cars. company is they, another the elon company. musk thing <laughs> they have so much going on and their development is so fast it is some of the fastest development i've ever seen come out of a company and with mm. that with speed comes mistakes right especially with something as delicate as an assembly line yeah is the tesla model y is that one of their newer models because i think they have like the s the three and the x or something like that were those the ones that came before and then we had like the x and then y or something i I think the y is fairly new the article says that um there's been reported issues about it over the past few months so i would assume that's come that it has come out pretty recently Mm -hmm. let's see uh it looks like it was unveiled in 2019 so yeah this would have to be a newer model i wonder if they're just still having issues with that since it's so new um wonder if the other models are you know more stable i guess well i 
I think I'm not I, I I forgot where I read this so this may be wrong but I think the model Y is kind of meant to be a more budget friendly model oh is for, that right for families yeah and so that might be another part of the issue is they're trying to cut corners where they shouldn't in order to make it cheaper oh, sure enough yeah the model Y will offer optional third row seats for a seven passenger seating capacity so yeah a more uh <laughs> less of a luxury car and and more of a a passenger more of a family car. car yeah yeah all right <laughs> all right so that's what we have for the tesla story um next i just want to call out this blog post that i read this past week really quick for anyone in marketing or who runs a website that sends emails there's a really good article from a really good blog post from palavra.io about uh, plain text onboarding emails. You know, if you're familiar with web development uh, at all, you know that um, when you send an email, it's kind of a nightmare trying to get it to work across the different range of uh, email clients. You know, some of them support certain styles, others don't. A lot of times it's recommended that you just stick with your standard you know standard from 10 years ago table layouts um table-based layouts in html because it's just really kind of difficult to get your emails to look nice across the whole spectrum of email clients so this uh article really just goes into more depth about the psychology behind plain text emails and why it's just could be a good option for you overall yeah, actually, I, I haven't had a whole lot of experience with this besides receiving emails, um, but it was a very interesting read. Uh, I, I'm trying to find a quote here. Um, I I kind of resonate with this. Uh, we have a lot of reasons to go with plain text instead of image-based. It helps deliverability, accessibility, and looks much more real and important than ad-looking emails. Because I know for me, if an ad has like, you know, an overabundance of just like formatting in general, mm -hmm. I usually yeah. don't pay much attention to it. Yeah, it just looks too fake. Exactly. Right? It, it looks so like spam. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a really interesting read. Highly recommend yeah, you the... check that out. As always, the links are in the show notes below. Do you have something else? Oh, I, I thought it was interesting. It kind of took on a like small business approach too because it was talking about like, personalized emails and like having somebody respond to every email so you know i'm not sure to to what extent this could apply for larger companies but uh mm -hmm. it's important to know mm -hmm. that it, it felt like it was very much geared towards small businesses and startups mm -hmm. and that would definitely like lessen the workload i know it could if you're a single developer like one to two days can actually be a lot of time yeah uh, because you have so many other things to do mm -hmm. if you're an indie developer trying to manage an entire website so if you have to dedicate a bunch of time like a few days to getting your emails formatted properly and getting them sent out properly and all that stuff if you can just revert to plain text and have that work just as well i think that a lot of developers will actually take on that option definitely all right so next up, we have another article from ZDNet. Uh, you may have actually seen this on the news. It was uh, 
pretty big story for a couple days there where in France a couple bar and cafe owners were actually arrested because they weren't keeping logs of their customers uh, traffic on their free Wi-Fi so you know you walk into a cafe or a restaurant somewhere they have their free Wi-Fi network in France um, there's a 14 year old law that these cafe owners were arrested under uh, that required them to or as the law was interpreted in this case, they were supposed to be keeping records, logs of their uh, customers' internet traffic uh, across their free Wi-Fi devices. And that just is kind of concerning to me as, you know, someone who uses Wi-Fi, I don't necessarily always want... <laughs> The company, like if I'm at Culver's or something and I'm using their Wi-Fi, it's definitely within their rights. But the fact that a, a company or the owners of a company could be arrested for not doing this, if I were a company owner, I wouldn't necessarily want to keep these logs. That sounds like a liability. Yeah. Uh, wow. Classy you going to Culver's for Wi-Fi. Good choice. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, my thing is I feel like a lot of business owners may not even know like how to turn logs on on a wi-fi network right it's almost essential for any business that could have wi-fi to have wi-fi in this day and mm -hmm. age yeah and definitely. not everybody is well versed in networking um mm -hmm. much less 14 year old french laws um yeah. so yeah and it's interesting, you know, should this apply to just the ISPs themselves or does this apply to anyone who technically provides Wi-Fi, right? It's a bit of a slippery mm -hmm. slope there. Um, right. I think they, they were, they, the law was supposed to be directed at ISPs or something like that. I don't know. I don't read French law. Uh, just generally speaking. You don't? Speaking. No, I'm sorry. That's not one of my primary interests. <laughs> And I don't speak French, so uh, sorry. Uh, je suis un garçon. That's all I know. Uh, I am... Uh, no, I have no idea. You, you lost me there. <laughs> Not all of us can speak French, Jacob. <sighs> I'll just have to suffer in my uh, Frenchlessness over here. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways, I think that they were... The, the law was kind of supposed to be directed at ISPs, but you were right there. It, it was like anyone who ended up providing Wi-Fi could, like, if, if, if your cafe owners are being arrested for this sort of thing, like, what does this mean for, you know, other people who might not have a password on their Wi-Fi? Does that also apply to just homeowners? Yeah, if I have um, somebody over to my house and I give them my Wi-Fi password, do I need to keep track of them using my wi-fi or yeah that's a good point and also uh an another interesting possible place where this could get messed up is in gdpr if you're familiar with that is now data that you have about a particular person you need to be able to respond to requests from that person uh about how you manage that data so not only would people like these cafe owners have to keep logs about their internet traffic, but they'd also have to be able to respond to requests from their customers to delete that internet traffic, yeah. for example. 
It's a lot of overhead to, for the business owners. Yeah, and again, like you said before, I don't think cafe owners are necessarily expected to be experts in networking. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the silver lining could be that uh, becoming a networking expert might become really profitable in France. So... All you French options. networkers out there, you know what to do. <laughs> yeah, but I just don't speak a lot of French, so I can't take advantage of this opportunity. I'm so disappointed. Well, that's why you have a podcast instead. Oh, yep. There we go. <laughs> Problem solved. All right. So that's it for that story. And the last thing we're going to talk about today is a Webpack 5 release. That's a new major version of Webpack. If you're familiar with Webpack, it's uh, it's like a preprocessor or a build tool rather for web projects. So you have your JavaScript, your HTML, your CSS, all nice in your, you know, you've been typing your code. It's so nicely indented and formatted. And then you want to ship it off to production. You're not going to send those, oh, so huge and beautiful source <laughs> files to your to your client or your customer, right? No, you're going to compile it down so it's really ugly and obfuscated and so nobody can read it. So that's basically what Webpack does for you. Has a lot of different cool plugins, um, primarily for web development because it's based on JavaScript, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, just wanted to call out that major release. It's release number five. I remember two years ago when Webpack 4 came out um, I actually made a video about that on my YouTube channel about how you can now use Webpack 4 hey, without a configuration plug. file. Yeah, shameless plug. I mean, it's my podcast. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything yeah. notable about this update, Jacob? Uh, anything notable about the update? Well, it sounded to me when I read their release notes that they're really just you know, they've been on Webpack 4 for a while. They've been keeping backwards compatibility with that. So it's been weighing them down. They want to introduce some new features and get rid of some deprecations. So uh, really, it sounded like it's it's they're just optimizing their configurations. Uh, they have some interesting, like more deterministic chunk loading and stuff like that. So hmm. um, yeah, I think it's just going to optimize the configurations a little bit more. Um, nothing particularly huge, just a lot of backwards uh, breaking changes. So it doesn't affect like. the user side of things that much? Oh, this is definitely, it's a developer-oriented tool. So someone like a programmer would use it, a user would never see it. Well, by user, I mean the programmer. Oh, oh, uh, yeah, definitely. So their, their configuration is changing. Um, it said that uh, after this, uh, if you upgrade to this change, it might actually break a lot of things mm. so it could take a few days to get up to date with this so might that's not what be i was expecting yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a major uh version change for you you know uh so maybe for some projects that have been on webpack for might not necessarily be the best idea but for new projects typically you want to start with the latest version of the library um lots because it, it does provide a lot more uh, advantages to you, like more automatic naming and stuff like that. So it'll be more convenient, but not necessarily if you're migrating from Webpack 4. So just wanted to call out that update. And that was actually the last thing that we had on the list to talk about today. <laughs> so um, anyways, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Compulang podcast. Again, uh, today I was joined by my good friend, Troy. Thanks for having me. It's been a genuine yeah. pleasure. 
<laughs> it was totally a pleasure having you on. I always enjoy talking to you. Um, and yeah, that's it for today's episode. As always, you can find the CompuLink podcast on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or on anchor.fm slash CompuLang, where you can also send a voice message, which I would love to hear from all y'all. Anyways, thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk at you next week.